Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to Virtual Roundtable. For those of you who have missed our previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archives at www.usafmc.org sounds to check out other programs and to subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast. We're on both Apple and Spotify. This is an interactive discussion today. If you have a question at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen fill out your name and your question. And if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your center of your Zoom screen to register your question. Our topic today may be more quintessentially American than any other. Since Manifest Destiny shaped the face of what our nation would become, the vast agricultural potential of our continent changed how Americans saw the world and how the world saw our nation. Agriculture exports became one of America's top money makers, and our agriculture science even created prosperity where there had been only famine as dwarf wheat changed India forever. Here at home, the small farmer toiling with his family to feed the country became its old gold standard as the ideal of independence, freedom, and work ethic. In fact, the hours of our schools and the days we vote were both conceived to fit the schedule of the American farmer. Now, however, small family-owned farms are functionally a thing of the past as agricultural conglomerates have used economies of scale to develop crops with higher yields, protections against insects and weeds, and even copyrights of their own. Thanks to logistics improvements in big box stores, their products are more affordable than ever. However, with progress have come concerns. Are family farms still sustainable businesses? What's the future of the Farm Bill and its partner, SNAP? Have subsidies and crop insurance changed the economics of farming for good? And what will climate change mean for the future of an industry so impacted by the weather? We have a great panel to answer those questions and to talk about ag in general, both in the age of COVID and moving forward. Congressman Rodney Davis is a Republican who's represented the 13th District of Illinois since 2012. Along with serving as the lead Republican on the House Administration Committee, Congressman Davis also serves on the Committee on Agriculture and Transportation and Infrastructure. He's also been a great supporter of programming here at FMC. Congressman Jimmy Panetta is a Democrat who's represented the 20th District of California since 2016. He serves with Congressman Davis on the Committee on Agriculture and also serves on the Armed Services Committee. And our third panelist is Brett Begeman, who serves as a member of the Executive Leadership Team and Chief Operating Officer for the Crop Science Division of Bayer. Based in St. Louis, Missouri, he oversees all areas of the crop science business. And prior to working with Bayer, Begeman served as President and Chief Operating Officer at Monsanto Corporation. Our moderator today is former US, United States Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman. Prior to working with the USDA, Glickman served as a member of the House of Representatives from his home state of Kansas for 18 years, where he also served on the Agriculture Committee. I know he's got a lot of great questions ready for our panel, so Secretary Glickman, the floor is yours. Now, can you hear me okay? Everybody, okay, great. Well, it, first of all, it's, it's great to be here with the. The Former Members Association does a terrific job in educating uh, both current and former members and parliamentarians around the world as well. And also with our great panel, uh, Jimmy Panetta and Rodney Davis are two wonderful examples of bipartisanship, especially when it affects uh, agriculture and food, health, nutrition related issues. And it's just a delight to have you. And Brett is uh, COO for Crop Sciences at Bayer, one of the leading uh, um, uh, crop protection companies, seed companies in, in the world. We're delighted to have you here as well. And I might just mention two quick things. Rodney, you look great. I know Rodney had a brief bout of, the, of COVID and uh, sh you're shaking your head up and down, which means you must be moving around okay, Rodney. Uh, 
Uh, okay, the fingers up. And then, of course, Jimmy Panetta. Um, I, I hate to talk about age, but uh, his dad and I were sworn in together in the Congress in 1976. And um, of course, that's when Jimmy was. Were you even born then, Jimmy? Or uh, I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> you might uh, let us know about that. But uh, any event, um, your dad is one of the my heroes in the U.S. Congress, and you're, you are becoming that as well, too. So let me just start out by the first thing on my mind, which is COVID. So COVID has obviously affected all of us, but it's had a particular effect on agriculture as well. And I know both of you have been involved in ag research, and we're going to talk about that because you, you're leaders in the effort on ag research in, in the Congress. But I wonder if each of you could just talk for a, a minute or two about how COVID has affected your districts and particularly how it's, it's affected agriculture and food and nutrition in your, in your districts. And Rodney, since you're senior, we'll start with you. Uh, well, thank you, Mr. Secretary. It's always great to see you and be on with you, uh, Jimmy is not just one of my good friends, he's one of my heroes too. Uh, but yes, he was alive in 1976. I actually think, are you a year older than me, Jimmy? Are you 51? I think so, I yeah. Think so. Yeah, yeah, 69. 60, yep, I'm, I'm right into 1970. So you're an old coot, we've just justified that. That's perfect, man, thank you for reminding all of us. Hey, and Brett, it's great to see you again and appreciate what you do in the ag sector. And when Jimmy came to Congress, uh, he joined the subcommittee that I chaired on agriculture that had jurisdiction over our biotechnology and our horticulture and our research. And really, there's been no better committee to really highlight the bipartisan efforts of what can get done in Congress. And I think that's ever more important when we answer your question, Mr. Secretary, about what does it mean to operate in the agricultural sector during COVID? Uh, we needed bipartisanship at the beginning, and we got bipartisanship. That's where we saw the CFAP program come into play. But that bipartisanship has continued to allow specialty crops to be expanded into the CFAP program, into the food box program that I believe has been so successful. And, and your successor, Secretary Perdue, has done a great job listening to all of us as to what's going to impact our districts the most. You know, one of the early issues that I talked directly to the Secretary's team about was what we saw happening in California and Wisconsin and places that are, that are more unlike Illinois where they were dumping dairy products because there wasn't a marketplace. We were seeing specialty crops plowed under because there wasn't a marketplace. And then I go to my grocery store shelves and I see none of those products. We were able to begin to get them to think about creating a global, uh, a national supply chain to get those products into our food banks to help those who still need help. And they've done that successfully. So what I've seen when it comes to the agricultural sector during COVID is cooperation, success, listening, and really being able to stay ahead of, uh, ahead of the fray and ahead of, of some of the issues that I think we were anticipating and thus making sure that our food supply remained as stable as it can be during a pandemic, much different than many other countries. And with that, I mean, rural broadband issues are big because many schools that shut down went to an online learning environment. Many areas I serve still don't have access to be able to make that environment successful. So those are the things that I, I see we're looking ahead post COVID that we can work on together. But it's not like we, Jimmy and I haven't been working on those issues together already. It just reiterated 
where our cooperation has mattered in the past. So I'll turn it back over to you, Mr. Glickman, and uh, I'd love to hear from Jimmy Panetta unless he insults me. Yeah, well, um, I think that uh, you've raised uh, several issues, rural broadband, which I certainly want to talk about, agriculture research, which I want to talk about. You've been involved, I think, on Meals and Wheels, the Meals and Wheels Act, uh, a lot of things uh, serving people who are poor and hungry and during this time period, but we'll get to those. Uh, I do think the bipartisanship between you and Jimmy Panetta is really uh, kind of a lodestar of what we ought to be looking for, you know, certainly in the Congress on agriculture, but other issues generally. So Jimmy, from your perspective, talk to a little of this about how COVID has affected the agriculture in your district. Sure, uh, and as, as well, uh, my sentiments as well. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for doing this, former members of Congress. Uh, Brett, good to see you, and of course, Rodney, Always good to be with you. You make it, you make it easy. Uh, it's a little easier. Uh, you make it easier for me on the baseball field. You understand that, uh, considering how you play. But at the same time, uh, it's always easy to be with you, and it's fun to be with you. But you make it fulfilling. And Mr. Secretary uh, Rodney Davis uh, kind of lives up to that example that I saw when I was in second grade, back when you and my father came into Congress in '76. But I'll never forget the the demeanor, the attitude, the bipartisanship that I saw when I did visit my father back in Washington, D.C., that all of the members pretty much uh, demonstrated back then. And it's something that I've tried to live up to. And I can tell you Rodney lives up to it as well, because we both believe that that is how you get things done. And let me tell you, a great example of that is on the Agriculture Committee and the work that Rodney and I have done uh, when it comes to both our agricultures and not just seeing our differences, but finding our similarities. And you may think that, you know, uh, you know, we have definitely have different districts from the central coast of California to central Illinois. Sure, they're different. We have different agriculture, but let me tell you, there's a lot to be, there's a lot there when our, in our similarities when it comes to ag and what we can do together to find our similarities. When it comes to the pandemic, Rodney's spot on. Uh, there was bipartisanship understanding that we need to ensure that our food security is there. And we saw that from the very beginning. Now, obviously, we have very different districts and different uh, in focusing on my district. As you know, it's a lot of specialty crops. What's it take to harvest those types of crops? It takes people. And that's the most important thing. So right away, realizing that we still needed people to come in and harvest these types of specialty crops, the last thing we needed is a stoppage of that. But unfortunately, this administration decided to stop that by shutting down all visa processing applications for H-2A workers in Mexico. I immediately led a bipartisan letter, overwhelmingly bipartisan letter to the administration, to the State Department saying stop that uh, and rescind that decision. And they did that. And that's why we were able to have the H-2A workers come in. So, but what it led down to is also continuing to have a protection for not just our farm workers, for our producers as well. With the CFAP program, understanding the dynamics of that and how my specialty crop producers aren't used to getting subsidies, to be frank. And so, yes, they want their fair share when it comes to that 19 million that was put forward under the CARES Act. And they got some of that, about 2.1 for specialty crops. But you have to realize that they weren't used to submitting the type of data that's needed in order to have those types of subsidies. So it took a, it took a process for them to get up, get that data and get up to speed once again, let a bipartisan letter to the administration, making them realize that this is we need to extend the time for which CFAP can apply for farmers can apply for CFAP 
and they agreed to that extension. Same thing with the types of crops, making sure that uh, the USDA understood that it's not just one to three crops that we have here, it's a number of crops. Therefore, it's realizing that they have to expand what crops can uh, get and apply for CFAP. And so once again, another bipartisan letter to the administration, making them realize that. Same thing for protection for farm workers, bipartisan letter, making sure that they understand that there's needs for protecting our farm workers, especially now, not just with COVID, but you should see the smoke I'm looking out my window right now uh, because of all the wildfires right now. Another bipartisan letter to the administration asking in leadership, asking for PPE, asking for testing, asking for education for our farm workers. So with the COVID, it's yes, there's been a plenty of hurdles that we've had to get over, but once again, it's demonstrated the bipartisanship that is there in Congress, especially when it comes to protecting our producers and protecting our farm workers here in, in, in my district. So I would ask you both to follow up on that. Do you expect uh, further assistance uh, to farmers as part of the, either the supplemental or, or um, whatever legislative initiative may be coming down the pike before the election? I mean, anything else this calendar year? Rodney, I'd start with you. Well, you know, I, I anticipate it's going to be based upon what the market conditions are when a lot of America begins harvesting their crop in, in districts like mine. You know, we don't know because the phase one China deal was signed before this pandemic hit. We don't know what the global significance of the pandemic is going to mean on China fulfilling their end of the bargain when it comes to phase one. And that's going to, I think, I, I believe that's going to matter in what decisions are made be it another round of MFP payments or what have you. But I can tell you, Mr. Secretary, I don't think there's been another administration that's been willing to look at the market conditions that may or may not have been caused by decisions from that administration and make sure they try to make our agricultural sector uh, be as risk, ri to be as less risky as possible. You know, one thing that we keep forgetting back during uh, Congresses where you served and where uh, Jimmy's dad served, it was a much different environment when it came to disasters to our agricultural community. We have now put in place over the last few farm bills a more public-private partnership approach to risk management to where we're not doing the disaster declarations on a regular basis like used to happen back when you were serving in Congress and as the Secretary of the USDA. So I think we're much better prepared long-term, not saying what you guys did back then was bad. Uh, there's no criticism there. I just think that we've put together over time in a very bipartisan way, a much less risky and much less costly to the taxpayer programs to deal with the risk that's associated with agriculture every year from our family farmers. And Jimmy, from your perspective, what do you see coming down the pike for the rest of the year that may, uh, following up on what Rodney talked about in terms of further funding, you know, you did, Rodney did talk a little bit about back in the ancient era, the Mesozoic era when Leon Panetta and I served, but boy, we, we would have never dreamed of the size of these appropriations that would be going into generally $3 trillion, $2 trillion, but also going into agriculture. Um, and so I, but be that as it may, what do you see happening in the future? Yeah, look, I, I, I think the one thing that's been made very apparent during this pandemic is that the one thing we can rely on 
our need to ensure that we have is our food security. And that means making sure that there is continued CFAP, uh, which I do believe is going to happen if there is another uh, relief package, which I believe they're getting close, it appears, um, once they have the right people at the table. Uh, like I said, it says Rodney, and, and you know, Mr. Secretary, this, is, this, game, this, this job is all about trust, and it's all about relationships. And you need that no matter what level of government you're at. And I think uh, that's what it takes to have this type of package, especially dealing with the amounts that we've been talking about, which are absolutely extraordinary and record setting, as we know. And like I said, my specialty crop producers here on the Central Coast were some of the first time that they received subsidies from the government. Uh, but it was necessary to maintain our food security. And as we know here, that, it, like I said, it highlighted the fact that we need to protect our farm workers. And so I think you'll realize that they are essential workers. We've realized that they are essential workers. We need those people to continue to have fresh fruits and vegetables. And that you basically, you have to look at not just the, the retail aspect, but look at all the restaurants that have been hammered as well. And what producers provide their products to each of those and therefore supporting uh, them accordingly. And obviously with the types of crops that are necessary as well. So I think it's, it's actually highlighted the fact that um, of all the elements that go into putting food on the table and not just for some members of Congress, unlike Rodney who understands this, but for many other members, as you know, that which are there who really don't, there are some that don't understand that it takes a lot to get food from the fields to our tables. And it takes the type of support that we saw in the CARES package, the type of support that was put forward in the HEROES Act uh, that was passed out of the House of Representatives. And I believe the type of support, be it through CFAP, be it through uh, more funding for PPE and testing for farm workers that hopefully will come in our next uh, CARE package. Yeah, no, no, I, uh, and I also in your case, but it's also true in Rodney's and everywhere else, the uh, public demand for fruits and vegetables is growing uh, geometrically as our diets begin to change and we're finding fruits and vegetables being grown, not just in California, but all over the United States. Um, and so I, I think you make a good point. Uh, I would just go to Brett for a moment and maybe Brett, you know, you, you are an agriculture leader of one of the largest agribusiness companies in the world. How, how has COVID impacted your company in terms, of especially your relationships with farmers? Yeah, well, thank you, Secretary. And uh, it's good to be with, with all of you uh, this morning to, to talk about agriculture. And I, I, I think it's really important, uh, uh, for, at least for me, having been in agriculture my entire life, growing up on a farm and then being in industry for 37 years. Never in my wildest dreams in January did I expect that this is what we were going to face uh, coming through this year. Um, but there's one thing that's always true about agriculture. It's an incredibly resilient industry with incredibly great people, uh, particularly our farmers that uh, have a way of just figuring out how to get it done. And there was a lot thrown at them this year. And uh, I echo uh, the comments from both congressmen of the incredible collaboration that took place, whether it be from farmers, uh, uh, agricultural entities like ourselves, uh, the government working together to ensure that we had a resilient food supply and it was massively disruptive. Uh, we, we had to completely change um, how we think about going to market with our customers because we, uh, being an essential business, of course we were still allowed to operate, but uh, from a logistics standpoint, the timing couldn't have been worse when you look at the big row crop areas the, in Rodney's area, because it was right when farmers were getting ready to go to the field is when this hit. 
and uh, we had to figure out uh, appropriate ways. And uh, our first priority was was our people, our customers, keeping everybody safe and, and working together. Uh, I think we've achieved that that quite well. Um, but we had to find different ways to communicate with our customers. Uh, digital technology, um, I think it stepped us ahead multiple years. Uh, fortunately, we had a lot of things in place digitally already uh, across agriculture to help us. Uh, and then the massive disruption, um, as, uh, as uh, Jimmy already talked about with the fruits and vegetable market. I mean, when, when consumers eat in a restaurant, they eat differently than when they eat at home. And uh, the supply chain disruption of that was significant. To Rodney's point, you, you see them dumping in one area and then it's short on the shelf in another. Um, the supply chains are different. They, they, they serve different ones. And, and being a supplier to the farmer who's producing those, uh, we had to figure out ways to, to help get the right seeds to the right places at the right time with the right crop protection products and, and, and in a logistic system that was strained. Um, but again, the, the incredible uh, resiliency of the industry and I, I think we came through it very well and, and actually, uh, uh, while it wasn't perfect, uh, and would never suggest that, we, we, we think we as an industry did really well. And I, I, my hat's off to the farmers. Uh, you know, when it's time to plant, they have to plant. And I just, I admire they all stepped up and they got it done. And uh, fortunately, others did too, the government, the industry, et cetera. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the farmer planting the crop and getting it harvested and, and getting it to the right place. Great. Well, we have a lot of questions, but I just have two more that I want to ask, then we'll go to questions. One is, is that when you look at the number of COVID cases and particularly uh, mortality rates, the two areas that seem to be the, uh, the kind of the crisis areas are nursing homes and people who work in workers in processing plants. And that's not just meat and poultry, it's also in uh, fruit, fruit and vegetable plants. A lot of these are, uh, are immigrant workers or people who are, have not been in this country for a long time. And, 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 you know, that's really kind of, I mean, it's, it's been shocking. I think it's get, gotten a little better lately, to be honest with you. But I wonder how you see that, because I, I suspect in a new administration and a new Congress, whoever gets elected, there's going to be a lot more focus on the health and safety of workers in plants, because that was the cog that caused this kind of the slowdown to take place. All these people got sick and many of them died. I wonder if any, either of the congressmen have, would have any comments on that. Well, well look, I mean, we, we, don't, we have some processing plants, but what we have is fields and we have farm workers in those fields. Yeah. And what you have to realize is that here in where I'm at, Monterey County, obviously one of four counties that I represent, um, you realize that 80% of the COVID cases are Latino one third of those cases are farm workers. And so clearly there is, unfortunately, what, what we're realizing is not only how valuable our farm workers are, but how vulnerable they are to this damn disease. And therefore, what you saw early on, I'm very proud of Monterey County and I brag about them every chance I can get. Early on, the uh, farmers and the Ag Commission, they all came together and the producers, they all came together and the farm workers came together and put forward certain uh, elements certain guidelines to follow when it came to housing, transportation, social distancing, housing, PPE. They put that together and it was a model for other counties to follow, not just in the state of California, but throughout the country. And so we're trying to live up to that in Congress by making sure that our leadership understands that it's that type of PPP, that type of testing, that type of education 
that's needed amongst farm workers, amongst the farming community, so that they can protect such a valuable and vulnerable uh, aspect of our, of our crops. Um, what, what you got to realize going forward is that, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, with, with the farm workers that are here, um, it, the disease, because the precautions that have been taken, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're catching it in the field doesn't necessarily mean they're catching it in the buses going to work or the cars going to work or in the housing, but it's social gatherings, unfortunately. And that's why education plays a huge part in the precautions that need to be taken uh, in, in putting that forward when it comes to our agriculture community. I can't stress that enough. Thanks. And, and Rodney, you know, I noticed, I know that uh, the agriculture workers and particularly in the meat and poultry plants were declared essential workers. And I know that a lot of the companies have really upped their game in terms of protecting these workers and providing them the kind of equipment that Jimmy talked about. But you know that that's what kind of broke the back uh, of the uh, of the food supply chain, at least for a while, along with the the restaurant issues that uh, Brett mentioned about. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. And you know, speaking as a COVID survivor yourself, uh, uh, I hate to keep going back to that, but you're a hero because you came through this thing. So I wonder if you might have any comments. Well, I appreciate it. And I, and I uh, agree with Jimmy's comments that, you know, this all goes back to the fact that we're fighting a disease and learning so much about it on a daily basis because no one knew it existed on earth a year ago. And I think there's some bipartisan successes in how we laid out a path to a vaccine months ago to where now we're talking about which company may have that right vaccine that could be introduced for public consumption in a matter of months. That's something that history, I think, will judge Republicans and Democrats very favorably on our response to the pandemic early. But it wasn't without hiccups. And because we're learning so much, as Jimmy mentioned, we're, we were able to see that the companies that you just talked about, Mr. Secretary, were able to address outbreaks and still, still give America the best food supply chain uh, and choices for food supply than anywhere in the world while we were fighting this pandemic. Um, we're learning so much more when it comes to the immigrant population that work in our fields. But keep in mind, Jimmy's district is much different than mine. I don't have as much of an immigration issue because much of our agricultural economy is automated in middle America. But I do represent, along with my colleague, John Shimkus, who you're, you served with, uh, we represent the horseradish capital of the world, where it still takes an, an effort and a smaller amount of farm workers to come into our fields and to harvest the horseradish, our specialty crop in central Illinois. And it's not without those same precautions that we're learning about that we have begun to reduce the risk of COVID spreading within those sectors of middle America and central Illinois too. But we also had some bipartisan failures before COVID hit. Because we didn't know it existed, we all put to the to side what we needed to do in the event of a pandemic. And it was very frustrating at the beginning of this to hear some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, and I'll, I'll say Jimmy was not one of them, complain and start to blame one side or the other for not reacting favorably to bringing our supply chain for PPE back to the United States, not allowing a country to corner the market, and, and making sure that our food supply was better positioned to feed those who needed help when they lost their jobs, like we've been able to accomplish. 
but I can tell you not one time in my seven and a half years of serving in Congress has anyone, anyone ever come to me, be it a member of Congress, be it a member of the administration, or a member of the general public and said, what are you guys gonna do about a PPE supply in the case of a pandemic? What's our level of appropriations that we ought to put forth to understand what a national stockpile should do? And are we ready for that? But we gotta to come together after this and Monday morning quarterback the, this thing to death to make sure it doesn't happen again. Because we can follow all the guidelines like I did during the two days in my district that my doctors think I picked up COVID. We followed every guideline. We had open office hours where we had social distancing. I wore a mask, did everything possible to where I cannot identify where I would have picked this disease up. I was vigilant because my wife's a nurse. Jimmy's met her and he knows if I didn't follow her rules, there'd be hell to pay at home. So I took my temperature with the same thermometer every day during this pandemic. And on August 5th, after two days of open office hours and constituent meetings, talking to Boy Scouts in a very socially distant way, you know what? I, I came in with a 99 degree temp that morning before I was gonna go to the gym, like I do every day when I'm, I see Jimmy in, in Washington, DC. But I knew that that 99 was different for me. That was high for me. So I went to a rapid scan facility that everybody in my district has access to, that Walgreens set up, and later that day, I came back surprisingly with a positive result. So even with that temperature, I could have gotten into any hospital facility. And if I hadn't been taking my temp, I would have never known because my symptoms were very asymptomatic. Little bit of loss of taste and smell, that's it. Little elevated temp, never above 100. I could have gone through this disease without ever knowing I had it. And I would bet you from some of the statistics that are coming out of Florida's antibody clinics, talking to other members of Congress who've been tested for antibodies and they are present. I would bet you there's a large amount of our population that has already been like me, been pretty asymptomatic and had the disease and didn't even know it and still don't know it. We've got to do what we can to not just do what Jimmy and I advocated for as members of the presidential uh, reopening task force to up our game when it came to diagnostic testing. We got to really up our game when it comes to antibody testing. Ron DeSantis is doing it in Florida. The last time I checked, one of his clinics had a 23.5% positivity rate coming back. That means about one in four people that went through that clinic had the disease already and never knew it, had never been diagnosed. But now since they were tested, those numbers go into our statistics. It gives us a better guide of what this disease is about, what the hospitalization rate is, and what the death rate is. Most people, Mr. Secretary, go through this disease like I did, minimal symptoms. It's sad because there are so many that, that, that have more serious results. And early on when we knew less about it, that was more prevalent. But we've got to well, do- we're glad, we're, glad, we're glad that you took care of yourself. And I think that's important. So I have a question from former Congressman Dennis Eckert. And that is, I'm gonna read the question. Can we assess the impact of the convergence of three seemingly different issues on the grape and wine industry, which is probably more for Jimmy, but the issues are obviously across the board. The three are COVID and consumption related issues, climate change and wildfires. 
So um, uh, I, you know, they're obviously more directed to Jimmy, but I think it's the impact is also with respect to other parts of the country. Jimmy, we'll go to you first. Yeah, it's it's been sort of up and down when it comes to the wine industry, um, to be honest with you, because, um, you know, to be, as we read, and maybe some of us have seen or experienced, um, the drinking of, the consumption of alcohol has gone up. <laughs> Uh, and that includes uh, our, our wineries. But you have to realize, though, that a lot of the events and a lot of the wine tasting rooms have gone down uh, in the sense that people have, with the economic shutdown, the self-induced coma that we put ourselves in, um, a lot of, uh, you know, these wine, uh, wine tasting rooms and the events uh, and the restaurants have all, you know, obviously gone down. And so that's where it's been very challenging, and we understand that combined with what we're dealing with right now in California, the wildfires and the potential for smoke taint coming in and uh, basically ruining uh, crops of grapes at this point. Now, look, I think um, when it comes to the latter of dealing with smoke, smoke taint, um, what we've seen is that there's gotta be more labs for testing uh, when it comes to uh, seeing what uh, the results were of a certain crop and how bad they were influenced by the smoke but also at the same time, making sure the WIP program uh, is up and running uh, and successful in order to reimburse uh, those types of crops for the damage that they've incurred during wildfires. Uh, and, and also, you know, making sure that the CPAP applies to uh, the wine grape industry as well. So uh, Rodney, I'd ask you maybe to take on from a little bit what Jimmy said, to talk a little bit about climate change and agriculture, which is, you know, become a somewhat of a toxic subject historically to talk about, uh, but I think less so now as people are recognizing that there are things that uh, agriculture can do to cope with this. And I'd like uh, Brett maybe to comment a little bit on on that as well. Uh, I, 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 we didn't talk about, uh, Jimmy, whether the fires were accelerated by climate change, but I think a lot of the scientists say yes, because of the very, very strong drought conditions and weather patterns. Uh, you're shaking your head yes, right? It, it's, it's hotter, it's drier, we're more susceptible to the type of ignitions that we had a couple weeks ago when you had 600 fires in California burning because of a dry lightning storm that a once in my lifetime type of dry lightning storm that comes through here and literally uh, permeates California with lightning strikes. And so therefore, based on the conditions on the ground, based on that amount of ignition coming from the air, uh, it would be literally and figuratively the perfect storm, unfortunately. So I do believe that uh, climate change has played a part in why we're experiencing so many wildfires, but it's also what we can do uh, in Congress about it, making sure that there are certain programs in effect, at least when it comes to our federal lands. As we know, if you take a picture of many of our forests, federal forests out there, you see a number of brown dying and dead trees. And so there needs to be a way in which we can appropriately address that and remove those types of fuel uh, for the types of forest, forest fires that we're seeing right now to reduce that risk. Uh, and I think we can work on that as well as uh, the Replant Act, making sure that after forest fires, that there's ways to plant trees. I had a dinner the other night with um, Undersecretary of Forest Service, and he was telling us about how it can get so hot sometimes that you can't just go in and have a plane go over and drop seedlings on the ground because the ground is so melted basically that the seeds will just bounce off. 
So there has to be other thinking outside the box as to how we're able to replant these forests with fresher uh, trees uh, so that we can basically continue to have the forests that we do, but also make sure they're not the dry and the dead ones, unfortunately, that we're seeing. So I, I, Rodney, I would ask you to maybe talk a little bit about how agriculture research impacts some of these issues generally and go back to Jimmy because you two, I think, are co-chairs of, uh, I'm not exactly sure what. I've seen you together talking about agriculture research. You're the gurus of ag research in the United States Congress. And well, you know, climate change is one of the issues that uh, is, is now being more and more subject to ag research at the land-grant schools and, and even in, in USDA and the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. Talk a, lot, a little bit about your work in ag research, how it might affect climate change and related funding issues. Well, first off, if I could take a step back, uh, you know, I don't want you guys to leave out the wine and grape industry in, in central yeah. Illinois, too. Obviously, you know, not at the standards of the wineries out in Monterey, California, from what I hear from those wine aficionados. However, um, what's interesting is to see that industry grow throughout America. The areas in, this, in, in the, uh, the uh, Monterey area, uh, in the valley there, uh, Carmel area, I mean, that is so widely known for such good grapes and, and that turn into to such good wine. Uh, I, I, am con I am concerned the impact that these fires are going to have. However, and this goes into the ag research discussion you wanted me to talk about, you know, our farmers and our, our agricultural sector are the most innovative and they will find a way to market that product. You know, maybe we're going to see a run on, on Monterey wine the, the Napa Valley wine also uh, that's going to now be marketed for uh, barbecue restaurants because of the new smoky flavor of that year, of the, the 2020 year. So they are able to figure out a way to get those products and find that niche into the marketplace. And that's why we need to continue to invest more into ag research. Jimmy was the one who came up with the idea of the Ag Research Caucus. And I was really proud that he asked me to join and co-chair that, that research caucus with him. We were very successful working together in the last farm bill to really up the ante when it came to ag research uh, investments, which has allowed ag research investment innovation. Uh, the FAR program has invested in two projects at the greatest land grant institution in the history of land grants, the University of Illinois. Yeah, some, some, some might challenge that, but it's certainly one of the great institutions. But it's not debatable, Mr. Secretary. I mean, you may challenge, Jimmy may challenge, yeah. Brett may challenge, but the debate has ended because I said so. Uh, but in reality, when it comes to climate change, that's where a lot of those, that's where a lot of research projects are developing ways to inject more carbon into the ground to grow more yields, but at the same time, figuring out way, ways to offset that carbon footprint. Those are the types of investments that are going to allow us to tackle climate change. And you're right. I'm a Republican. I do believe America does not get enough credit for what we're doing to reduce our climate footprint globally as compared to some of our other competitors and other nations. We don't get enough credit for that. But at the same time, since we only control about 16 to 18% of global emissions, we've got to continue to do our part. And the research methods that we're investing in allow us to export that technology to other countries and to our competitors to help them reduce their global footprint also. I just put a plug in for the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, which has a couple of major grants in cooperation with others at the University of Illinois. One of them is working on photosynthesis. 
the major items that will allow crops to be grown more efficiently. Jimmy, you want to talk about ag research for a moment? You bet. No, uh, like I said, it's, uh, you know, this is a, a great example of finding the similarities, even though we have such different districts. And mind you, you know, Rodney's, of course, been out here to the Central Coast for a, a, a number of reasons, including being put him out there in the strawberry fields. And I've been out to his district, uh, where I was out in the soybean fields. And basically, having to, to develop that understanding, and like I said, finding our similarities and our realizing that it's all about what it comes down to is it is about ag research. And I can tell you, I will never forget um, in the 2018 Farm Bill or the buildup to it, that Rodney basically approached me out of the blue. They were in the majority at the time. Republicans were in the majority at that time and basically came up to me knowing that we weren't necessarily in the mix of putting together that Farm Bill and said, what do you need in the Farm Bill? And obviously we talked it through and it came down to more funding for AFRI, more funding for ARS, more funding for SCRI grants, more funding for ag tech, more funding for AGARDA. And we talk about public-private partnerships. Um, and it was all about basically uh, ag research, realizing that that's the backbone of what it comes down to when it comes to furthering uh, our food security in this country and being uh, a, a country that can also provide food for other countries as well. Uh, and so you'll see the up the bolstering of the funding in the Farm Bill, not just in the 2018 Farm Bill, but I think you're gonna see it based on the work that Rania and I have done on the Ag Research Caucus to highlight it for other members and other members understanding, oh yeah, this is how we can put in our two cents for our district in agriculture to make sure that they get the funding necessary when it comes to research for our crops. And so I believe that in the next Farm Bill, you're gonna see uh, funding for Ag Research continue to shoot up. Another area is ag tech, as I mentioned, that's very important. Look, out here on the, on the uh, Central Coast, uh, as I've said and I will continue to say, uh, it's, about, it's about labor, it's about immigration. Despite the wildfires, despite the climate, despite the lack of water, the number one, industry, the number one issue for my producers has consistently been more people to harvest these crops. And so that's why I wanna give a shout out to Rodney for being a vote for the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, a way that we can keep people here who continue to work in agriculture, streamline the H-2A process and make it easier and fund them uh, for housing and protections for our farm workers who are here. But at the same time, the other venue we have to go down is ag tech, making sure we can uh, not just deal with precision farming, not just deal with GPS, not just deal with UAVs, but also a way to harvest our crops here in specialty crops. It's very hard, Mr. Secretary, as you know, to replace the human discernment when it comes to determining what is a fresh, ripe, safe, aesthetically pleasing strawberry. Um, it takes humans right now to do that and to find the technology to replace that is difficult, but they're doing it. And actually I took Secretary Purdue, who was kind enough to visit my district last year, out to a strawberry field and showed them a type of machines that were working with companies in the Silicon Valley at there in our fields here on the Central Coast, machines that take more pictures of a strawberry plant in one afternoon than in the history of photos taken of a strawberry plant before last year. And so it's that type of thinking that we need to start to have and invest in when it comes to uh, dealing with our immigration issues, our labor issues to make sure that we have the ag tech that's responsible that can help not only in our immigration issues, but also in our climate change issues uh, when it comes to making sure we use less resources. 
Well, that, so Brent, I, Brent, I don't want to ignore you, but I've got a couple questions from the audience that I'm going to have to get to, and you should feel uh, free. One is from Congressman Jim Ross Lightfoot, who I served with from the great state of Iowa, who has a question about farmer, how, how farmers must expand to remain viable. Uh, Jim, are you on? You want to unmute, unmute and ask your question? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Good to see you again. Yeah. I, uh, we were I we were together for a while. I know that. Yes, we were, and uh, as I, I mentioned, it looks like both of us haven't grown any more new hair. Yeah, well, know you know, hair is something that agriculture has not been able to find an answer to. But I'm looking to Rodney and Jimmy, and especially a company like Bayer to to make something that uh, can deal with the scalp. But go yeah, ahead. It should be some kind of fertilizer or something. Yeah. I don't know. Has to be liquid to put it on. Um, Anyway, uh, I've got a couple of questions. I have a cousin who took over the farm from his dad and he's expanded and expanded. He still kept it a family farm with uh, he and his wife living there. And he's up to the point now he's paying close to a million dollars for certain pieces of equipment that he needs to stay in the field. And my question is, with all this that's going on and with the insight that you gentlemen have, how much bigger is he going to have to get just to stay viable? So the question's kind of about consolidation in agriculture and given the economics, uh, is, is, there a role, is there a role for the small and medium-sized fa farmer anymore? And, uh, you know, when I first came into Congress, a five or 600 acre wheat farm was considered middle-sized. Now it's, I think that'd be pretty hard to do without some great diversification growing perhaps specialty crops as part of that or something else. And, and of course the livestock industry is suffering as, as much. So what is, I think to Jim's question, how big do you have to get to be uh, economically viable? And I realize it differs from place to place, region to region, all that kind of stuff. Rodney, you want to start with that? Yeah, I thought you were going to say when you served in Congress 500 to 600 years ago, Dan, but it really wasn't that long ago. I no, promise no, no. you. I know, I know. Uh, but I, I will tell you, I, I think what uh, Mr. Lightfoot is talking about, you know, is indicative of, of what we've seen in middle America, in central and southwestern Illinois, where we've seen uh, farms continue to grow. Uh, we, we've seen the prices of our most fertile farmland in America exponentially rise to where a family decides upon the death of a, of a patriarch or a matriarch uh, to, to sell the farm. And that has allowed nearby farmers or investors to begin to look at that farmland as a business rather than a livelihood. I think what Jimmy and I put together in the farm bill has helped incentivize some of those small to medium sized farmers. Uh, and I think innovation is key too. Uh, in middle America, we're not that diversified when it comes to our agricultural products. It's usually because of the, the technological advances from companies like Bayer, it's corn and it's soybeans. You know, I, I, I call them the special crops, not the specialty crops. There are special crops, but it doesn't mean that we can't try to figure out new and innovative approaches, be it hemp, which was the crop du jour a few years ago, or something else that could fit into that rotation to make agriculture in middle America less volatile to the global marketplace. And that's what I think leads us to be able to address the affordability issue that you brought up for the equipment, uh, Jim, and then also what we see with the problems of 
ever increasing real estate values underneath those crops that have led to a major change in who owns our agricultural industry in the Midwest too. But things that we're considering, that we're working on, I'd love to hear Brett's perspective based on the research side with his market analyses kind of it, uh, look at when it comes to uh, the crops in middle America as we go forward and the diversification of those. Yeah, so Jimmy, you wanna talk a little bit about small and medium far sized farmers and how they cope and do they have to just grow, 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 grow in order to be competitive? Well, look, that's, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna hit back on this for a number of reasons. One, because I'm proud of it. Two, because it's the truth. It also comes to research and diversifying as well and having the research to do that uh, going forward. I mean, you, you have our producers out here, Ronnie does in his district even, not just dealing with conventional, but we're dealing with organic crops as well and trying to meet the market uh, demand going forward for those types of things and pivoting towards that, but making sure that there's a support for these producers to do that. That's why exactly why we invested in record setting amounts in the Farm Bill for the Organic Research Extension Initiative going forward. Um, but also at the same time, it's trying to bolster up those young, new farmers, veteran farmers. And we did that in the Farm Bill and we even did that in the, in the HEROES Act, basically for beginning farmers and ranchers with financial assistance, uh, local agriculture market program, the LAMP program as it's called, to support our local farmers and farmers markets. Um, those types of programs we're tracking in Congress, we're investing, this, investing in, in the Farm Bill and realizing that they can help the young and the new farmers uh, going forward, especially during this time of the pandemic. Great, and uh, Brett, you wanna talk a little bit about this because you know, I mean, uh, the business, uh, your business has changed a lot and I don't know how your customer base is going, but do you see your customer base move, moving also to larger and larger producers or is there a role for the smaller and medium sized producer? I think scale has been a question that's been with agriculture for, for 50 years. And uh, in some cases, the scale has been getting larger. Some of the Midwest operations, as Rodney talked about, and and then of course you have other other markets, uh, the specialty crops, etc. Where uh, scale is important, but but quality um, and the quality of the produce that they're producing uh, carries a much bigger weight going to consumers. And and frankly, we don't need that many acres to produce it. It's more about quality and and meeting the demands of the customer. I think it's a very holistic situation and I don't think you can separate them from one to the other. Uh, I should go back to some of the discussion we were having around the climate change, the environment, et cetera. Uh, we've been doing a significant amount of research for the past five years, working with farmers and, and other groups, looking at how we can improve soil health. Uh, and while we're improving soil health, how can we sequester more carbon in the ground? And by sequestering that carbon in the ground, build models that are predictive of that sequestration. And just this year, we uh, started signing up farmers in the United States to uh, sequester carbon in the ground using uh, uh, processes and agronomic systems like no-till and cover crops, et cetera, uh, to sequester carbon. And uh, with the intent to be able to turn around and provide those carbon credits to companies like ours, as well as other companies, uh, to offset the, the, the CO2 emissions from others. And I think that's a diversification of agriculture that, that many people are talking about. It's a new value stream for, for agriculture uh, running the operations that they're doing. Of course, there's always, a, farmers are incredibly innovative. If there's a demand for a new crop out there, I promise you, I can get it grown. You just tell me what it is and tell me what the market is, I'll get it grown. 
because farmers farmers will step up and grow it. It's it's all about the market and the existence of it. And part of the reason they grow a lot of corn and beans in the Midwest is there's a market for it. Uh, it isn't because that incredible land can't be utilized to to grow other crops. It's because of what the market is. And I think we have to look at that. And and there's all kinds of diversification across our industry. Uh, Jimmy mentioned the, the organic is a is a demand from the consumer side. We participate as a company. We have biological products that we sell to those. We supply them seed just like we do anybody else and, and work with them to try to increase the productivity because at the end of the day, uh, we don't get any more land. We don't get any more water, but we got to feed another 2 billion people in the world, including here in the U.S., which the pandemic highlighted for us that while food security, we did a good job. And I'm really proud of the industry. At the same time, it puts a highlight on some of the challenges that we do have, some of the vulnerable populations that, that have been talked about today, and, and we can do better. We, we've done phenomenal work in improving from a, from a sustainability standpoint in agriculture, but we're not where we need to be. We need to keep challenging ourselves to continue to go further, and I'm optimistic that we can do that. And scale becomes a part of that play. I think there's a lot of room or call it mid-sized farms uh, across the U.S. And it's so diverse. I mean, in the case of some where you have farmers working off farm as well as working on the farm or whether, you know, farmers aren't that different than the rest of society. Sometimes a spouse is working off farm and somebody else is working on the farm. At the end of the day, 95 plus percent of the agriculture land in the United States is still operated, not necessarily owned, but operated by family farms. So it's still a very family farm operation in, in the U.S. And, and scale will always be one of those things that we're going to have to constantly look at. And how do we manage against the scale? And um, I think the, uh, the size of equipment that was, was mentioned that, that's necessary, it's, you got to match the scale to the equip, equipment to keep your cost in line uh, to be able to compete in the market. And as we know, particularly in agriculture, it's constantly becoming more and more of a global market. And, uh, I think that's the that's the driver that's behind much of that. But but well, I have no doubt that agriculture will be successful and the R and D will be there to to deliver. Well, you know we uh, we're going to have to close out, but we haven't talked about a lot of things: uh, rural broadband, uh, the SNAP program. Uh, uh, you know there are farmers to ranchers issues, uh, consumer choice, diet. There are a million different things impacting agriculture, but. I recall uh, years and years ago, uh, there was a movie called The Graduate, and the secret sauce in that movie, some of you may remember, was plastics. You, uh, you all are too young to remember that. But I do think the secret sauce in this country for the future is food and agriculture. And I think that uh, the two congressmen we've had here are real leaders, and, and uh, I'm, I'm really proud of you both for what you've done in terms of uh, thinking for the future, bipartisanship, working together across the, the um, line, the border, the wall, whatever one would call that. Uh, you, you, are, you are the kinds of people that we ought to look up to in so many other areas. So I wanna thank you all for participating. Thanks for the uh, uh, members, uh, former, there are no several former members who are watching this. Uh, uh, I wanna thank the, uh, you, Brett, for your leadership and your company's leadership and also thank the former members of Congress uh, for being here. So again, thank you all, best of luck. Take Everybody take care of themselves, which is the most important thing we can do right now. And good luck on the elections as well too.